0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, June 29th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a Facebook ad starring Dana Loesch that says this
0: They use their media to assassinate real news. They use their schools to teach children that their president is another Hitler. They use their movie stars and singers and comedy shows and award shows to repeat their narrative over and over again.
1: Okay, they are liberals, or even worse, liberal elites. Common complaint about liberal elites, it's set to music. The visuals are a montage of black and white, high-speed pictures. When they talk about award shows, there's a picture of the Frank Gehry-designed Disney concert hall. So that is triggering resentment of elites. Let's continue.
0: Make them scream racism and sexism and xenophobia and homophobia to smash windows, burn cars, shut down interstates and airports, bully and terrorize the law abiding until the only option left is for the police to do their jobs and stop the madness.
1: Okay, visuals go pretty quickly from a peaceful protest to an anarchist kicking down a door. Okay, I get it. They're not comporting themselves with the journalistic integrity of the PBS NewsHour. This is an issue ad. Let's continue. The only way we save our country and our
0: freedom is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist
1: of truth. The clenched fist of truth? Is that like the gritted teeth of veracity, the flex of spittle of two-source confirmation? And I got to say, this seems like a really impassioned, aggressive, but stirring invitation to subscribe to the Washington Examiner, possibly to sign up to become a premium subscriber to The Daily Wire. You arm yourself with the truth. That's the idea, right?
0: I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm
1: freedom's safest place. Whoa, whoa! Guns! Rifles! So when it comes to liberal elitism, fight fire with firearms? Whoa! So these ideas that you were criticizing, the solution is grab a gun? Now, I guess if you're the National Rifle Association, and in the case of Dana Loesch, she is, you just heard her say so, when you are the NRA, the solution is always grab a gun. You're in the gun expansion business, every problem can be solved with a gun. Just like when you're a hammer, everything's a nail... When you're the NRA and you're in the gun expansion business, every problem can be solved with a gun. That one plot line on Friday Night Lights that made no sense? Solve it with a gun. Gradually taking all the peanuts out of cracker jack? I could shoot that problem straight. I shouldn't have to say unsweetened when I order an iced coffee. That should be assumed. Hey, join the NRA, that's the solution. Look, I get it. But you may not want to so aggressively contrast ideas That you don't like with guns that you do like. And that phrase, the violence of lies, that is a charge reserved for campus snowflakes, isn't it? That bad ideas aren't a violence against you, they're just bad ideas. I hear conservatives who I respect making that good point all the time. But I guess you can up your membership by depicting a frayed culture that can only be stitched together via a rifle scope. I guess you're going to do it. You're the NRA and I'm worried. On the show today, in the spiel, the president is shameful in all senses. But first, no, not a breather from how intense this has been so far. You do not get a break. It's Don Winslow, perhaps the greatest crime novelist working today. His new book is about the NYPD, and it is quite literally a tour de force. There are a lot of great awards you could win in different fields. There's uh, the Jupiter Award and a con. they give the Palm Door, which is a uh, golden palm. There's a silver and golden baton that the DuPont Awards give out. But here's my favorite award, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. The Ian Fleming <laughs> Steel Dagger is given for the best thriller novel of the year, the reigning champion or last year's champion, was Don <laughs> Winslow for the cartel. He could have won it for any of his other books from Savages to the prequel of the cartel. And now he's out and that one was called The Power of the Dog. And now he's out with a new book about the NYPD. It's called The Force, or although in the book it's referred to as The Force. Don Winslow is here. Hello, Don. How are you?
2: I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that award's no joke, man. That's a serious (laughs) little piece of business. It's actually a dagger stuck through a piece of metal. So,
1: Don, here's my thing. You're from San Diego, right? And yet you get this New York DNA like no one I've ever seen. How'd you do that? How'd you channel it?
2: Well, I got myself born in New York for one. That's good. You know, that didn't hurt. That's good. Yeah, I was born in Staten Island, you know lived in New York on and off since I was a kid, worked in New York, uh, worked in movie theaters and on the east side, Times Square, lived and worked on the Upper West Side and in Harlem. It's not so much a departure for me, it is a homecoming.
1: So this book is set in the present. I mean, the very page that I read a reference to Philando Castile, a second later, there's an announcement on the radio about uh, his trial. Does the conception of New York, how much did you have to update it from when you were there?
2: Well, a lot. You know, I, I lived in New York during probably its nadir. You know, maybe its worst days, the late 70s to the early 80s uh, and then left, you know, and as you said, went out to California. So I had to update it a lot, uh, came home a lot, hung out with cops, did my research.
1: Do you think that the cop, the main protagonist here, Denny Malone is typical of a 2017 cop or in a lot of ways, a throwback? And I, I wonder though, if many cops in 2017 actually consider themselves throwbacks in old school.
2: Yeah, I think that, that Denny Malone is a very contemporary 2017 cop, but remember that he comes from a family of cops. His dad was a cop, so he's got some old-school kind of attitudes about him in some old school and some old-school ways, and a lot of these guys do. You know, the, the NYPD, like a lot of police forces, are inherently kind of socially conservative and traditional, and, and they carry a lot of these things on.
1: What a cop like Malone and a lot of cops have to navigate is the tension between sort of being the bulwark against uh, the forces of chaos. I mean, that's how they see themselves. And for years and years, a lot of cops in media who are compelling anti-heroes, you know—have to bend the rules, Dirty Harry or NYPD Blue. But we're we're decades past that, and the crime rate has fallen, and drug use has at least changed. But you think cops still see their job as you know? essentially like Sipowitz did in NYPD Blue.
2: You know, I don't know if they see it like Sipowitz did and and one of the great characters, and by the way, one of the great people, you know, around. But uh, yeah, I think that they still see their job is to hold the line. Now, Now, crime has definitely fallen, although homicide rates are sort of, you know, creeping back up a little bit. There are some very specific reasons for that. But the job of policing itself, you know, hasn't changed all that much.
1: You know, I was thinking about the cartel, which I loved, and I was comparing it in my mind to The Wire in that I find myself dealing with actual news stories, often having this reaction, well, that's not the way it goes, and I know the real way because, and then I realized, oh, I know how the drug trade goes in Baltimore because I watched The Wire, wait, that's fiction, or I know all about the cartels because, wait, Mm -hmm. I read the cartel, that's fiction. Yeah. and, and so here's my question. So Congress called the uh, creator of The Wire, or he accepted the invitation to testify about drug policy. He wrote this right. wonderful work of fiction that certainly incorporated uh, fact and kind of became an expert or allowed himself to become an expert. Would you be comfortable with that?
2: Yeah, I would. Listen, I mean, I just took out a full page ad in the New York Times to discuss these issues. Uh, Two years ago, I took out a full page ad in the Washington Post advocating legalization of drugs. And certainly The Wire would be a great example of uh, an intensely researched and intelligent look at these issues. So I'm encouraged that politicians would like to talk to some of us.
1: Yeah, and so tell tell me about your uh, full page ad in the Times. I, here's my question: Was it covered by the marketing budget of the Force? No. Okay. Good.
2: It was not. <laughs> no, I paid for it. Look, I've made a good living writing about these topics. Yeah, in researching books like Dog, Power of the Dog, and Cartel and the Force, I meet people, been to the funerals, know the families. Uh, talk to the cops. I've made the sympathy calls. I kind of feel that sitting safely at my desk writing about these issues, if I have the wherewithal, I owe it to speak out. I feel strongly about these things.
1: Yeah. If cops were allowed to rewrite drug policy, what do you think they'd change?
2: Oh, I think they'd change a lot. You know. Now listen, of course, it's always dangerous to make generalizations. Some cops believe in, in the current policies and the war on drugs, and, and a lot of cops don't. Increasingly, though, I hear from them, and they're saying, we need to change our thinking. You know, they'll, they'll call me up, and, uh, to, you know maybe to blow off steam sometimes. And they'll say, you know, uh, 85% of the people who come through my jail test positive for drugs, and I have them for 30, 60, 90, 120 days, and I'm wasting that time because yeah. I know I'm going to see him again, Yeah, you know? So uh, I think that cops are on the streets, and, you know, it's cops that go, you know, find someone with, dead with that needle in their arm still. You know, three in San Diego the other day.
1: When it comes to questions literally of policing of the concerns raised by the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. um and cops good cops are not deaf to that yet i think that they even though they know as much about policing uh communities of color as uh anyone else or at least as much as you know the politicians making it making the uh, policies i'm not sure i would take their opinion on that one uh they seem to be not all of them, but many resisting where society needs to go in terms of progress on that issue. What do you think?
2: Uh, You know, I think that that's changing a little bit. Uh, Look, again, we're, we're making broad generalizations and those are always, always dangerous. You know, I think that that what you're talking about is a a defensive response by cops and a sort of circling the wagon kind of attitude. Uh, I don't agree with it, but I get it. I understand it because they often feel under siege. They often feel misunderstood. But when you're looking at a video of a kid running away and a cop shooting him in the back, I, I think most cops are going to agree. There's no excuse for that. There's no reason for that. When I've talked to cops about these issues, and I have, I've asked them very directly what they think, you know, about specific cases. When you kind of push it, what you really get to is them saying, some people just shouldn't be cops. And they'll look at recruiting and training issues more than anything else. What I would say, though, is the cops are no more or less racist than the society that they come from.
1: I once interviewed David Chase, a creator of The Sopranos, and he said said that he found that a lot of uh, gangsters that he studied, a lot of members of the mob, were very much influenced by media portrayals of the mafia. Like, that was the way they should act. Do you ever find that goes on with police?
2: Yeah. Listen, I I agree with Chase on that. You know, I, I never heard the word godfather used in that context prior to the film coming out. Yeah. They liked what they saw in that film, and uh, and they imitated it. And even the Mexican cartels, you know, when the first big cartel was organized, the boss of that called himself the Godfather, in direct imitation of the culture that came out of that film. The cops do that, I think, to some extent, but I think to a lesser extent, you know, because they don't sort of have the, the kind of freedom to invent themselves, if you will, that mobsters do. And I think they resist it. But are there cops who, you know, see Dirty Harry and influenced by that? Sure, of course. Uh, But I, I don't think to the extent, you know, you find it in the OC world.
1: Did you get any word that members of actual cartels had read and in any way were influenced by your books on the cartels?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, they certainly had read it. I don't know to what extent they were influenced by it, but I have had word they've read it. Yeah.
1: Did they like it? Object to it?
2: Think that it
1: uh, told the story right? What? Glamorized them? What?
2: Well, they they certainly said I got it right. That's good. You know. <laughs> well, some liked it and some didn't. You know, <laughs> and I, I have, I've heard from both. You know, but that's just the nature of the business.
1: Don Winslow is the author of The Force. You might know him from such New York Times full-page ads as last Sunday. Don, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. It was great talking to you.
2: Mike, thanks for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: And now the spiel. Today, our crude Commander-in-Chief tweeted of MSNBC hosts Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough. Low IQ Crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me. She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. Only the meeting, which did happen, there were pictures was well-documented at the time. If anything, the media complaint was of Joe and Mika being too close to the then-president-elect. In an interview with CNN, Scarborough, after taking heat for the meeting, which did happen, explained he was at Mar-a-Lago on New Year's Eve and the day before. He said, we went back because Mika was going to be involved in the interview, and he said that he wanted to meet with Mika as well. That was really the premise for the follow-up on the 31st because they obviously had some very tough exchanges back and forth, and I think they just wanted to talk those through. Well, now it's six months later, and Donald Trump is attacking the woman he said he didn't meet with because her face was bleeding, even though he did meet with her, and her face doesn't appear to have been bleeding. Many in Washington were shocked, including a fair number of Republicans. Republican member of Congress Lynn Jenkins of Kansas tweeted, This is not okay. As a female in politics, I'm often criticized for my looks. We should be working to empower women, she later told CNN.
0: We have a lot of things that we're working on here on Capitol Hill. The Senate's wrestling with health care, how to save the broken system that we have today in the House. We're focused on tax reform and how to get the economy moving and people back to work and wages increased. Uh, we would just appreciate it if the president could focus uh, with us on doing some really good things for the American people and leave uh, comments like that uh, to himself.
1: White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders defended her boss this way.
0: The president has been uh, attacked mercilessly on personal accounts by members on that program. And I think he's been very clear that when he gets attacked, uh, he's gonna hit back. I think the American people elected somebody who's tough, who's smart, and who's a fighter, and that's Donald Trump. And I don't think that it's a surprise to anybody that he fights fire with fire.
1: A fighter? I'll concede the point. Tough? He seems pretty tender. Smart? Hmm. The S-word I would use is not smart, it's shame. Donald Trump has an abiding sense of shame. Shame drives him. He uses shame as a cudgel, attempting to shame women for their looks all the time. And he's drawn to blood. Remember Megyn Kelly and the blood coming out of her wherever? He's obsessed with plastic surgery. He's constantly attempted to shame women who he says have had plastic surgery. Because, of course, none of his wives ever had or ever will. Not his current wife, who says she wants to campaign against cyberbullying. Not his daughter, advocate of female empowerment, Ivanka Trump. The real shame of the president's never-ending hurdle into the muck is that nothing he can do or say can so damage his standing among his acolytes that they will turn their backs on him. Anything he says gets excused, brushed aside, in some quarters even celebrated. Now, it's true that only 43% of Republicans say that the president's use of Twitter is positive. He still has an 80% approval rating among Republicans. I don't see that changing. A vicious attack on a liberal member of the news media won't be a problem. After all, the Access Hollywood tapes didn't cause him much damage among the GOP, and that was only a vile whisper about an apolitical member of the entertainment media, though shaming comments about cosmetic surgery factored in both. To some extent, I understand an ideologue putting up with all the president's insults to get his legislative agenda passed. That's a political choice. Then there are Republicans like Ben Sass, and he clearly doesn't like the president's values, but he does recognize that whatever... President Trump's version of politics are, are more aligned with him than they're not. And it might even be something like political malpractice to pick a war with the president. Coastal liberals would like it if Ben Sasse did that. I'm not sure Nebraskans would. The thing that annoys me most isn't that he lies or he's ignorant or that he's cruel. And it's not even that he lies and is ignorant and is cruel and gets away with it. Because when you think about it, when you look at the facts, he doesn't really get away with it. Most Americans see him for what he is, but not all Americans and not enough to ever do anything to change his trajectory. There are so many figures in public life who are regarded as negatively as he is. But think about the kind of people they are. They're reality stars who willingly play the heel. They're all these marginal figures who need attention more than respect. But most of us mentally quarantine these Dogs the Bounty Hunter or Ann Coulters or Charlie Sheens to the slag heap of our consciousness. It is a big country. There's limitless media. These clowns know what their hustle is, and it doesn't really affect us. There's no real sense of injustice that Dustin Diamond is able to get booked on whatever shows he gets booked on and is held in a place of general disapprobation. Putting aside the president's ability to set policy and craft laws and sign executive orders, it is galling that no matter how far he falls, he never falls far enough to get his comeuppance, to be rendered impotent, to be shamed. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Brube won the Tungsten Tweezer for achievement in the field of sliver removal. Mary Wilson was awarded the steel alloy ball-peen hammer for her work in general malleability. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, was awarded a brass tack for his honesty in the field of how seldom he uses brass tacks. The GIST, recipient of the 2014 Pewter Computer for outstanding achievement in the field of electronic abacuses. oom puru de and thanks for listening.